Today is week three of our series, Rhythms of the Garden, where we're sitting with Genesis chapters one and two, the first chapters of the Bible. And specifically, it's depiction of the Garden of Eden. And we're doing this with the central conviction that God's story starts not with a problem, but with a good ideal vision of what God intended for creation and humanity. A vision that both begins the biblical story and ultimately defines where God is directing it and us back to, which is important because if it's not just about showing us what's gone wrong with our world, this means that the garden holds the image of life that is something beautiful. Again, it's not just what's gone wrong in our world, it's an invitation to rediscover the vision and rhythms of life we were created to experience at the beginning. And that we, as disciples of Jesus, are invited to adopt, rediscover, and be shaped by here and now, back into pockets of Eden, living in this world. And we've seen so far how this vision is defined by these rhythms of creativity and relationship. And today we turn to the next crucial rhythm, one at the center of Eden's vision for humanity. And that is its vision of work. Now, as a 90s kid, I grew up with two major competing cultural narratives about work. On one hand, work was depicted in many spaces as the sole search source of human meaning, that people were only as valuable as what they produced, essentially workaholism, careerism, which thankfully my parents did not model, but it was common around me. I had friends with these parents who were barely home because, as the culture taught us, work was everything. It came first, always. But then, on the other hand, there was this counter-narrative forming in the 90s, one deeply influenced by existential crisis. You see, the Cold War ended and was followed by massive technological and societal shifts, the creation of the internet and the rise of corporations and the explosion of the global economy. And it launched a decade of American prosperity without clear conflict abroad. But for many, this didn't produce a sense of peace. It actually produced a malaise. You see, without conflict or an enemy or clear objectives, people began to question whether their lives had purpose, shaping this narrative of life in America where every day was the same and meaningless when it came to pretty much everything, but especially when it came to work. You see this captured in movies like American Beauty and Fight Club, but I think it's a vision of work captured best by the 90s comedy Office Space. Let me roll a piece of the trailer just to get this on our minds. From Mike Judge, creator of Beavis and Butthead and co-creator of King of the Hill, comes a movie about people who go to work. who are part of a team. And remember, next Friday is Hawaiian Shirt Day. Okay, but I could set the building on fire. Who respect their boss. We need to talk about your flair. Well, I have 15, 15 pieces on. 15 is the minimum. Brian, for example, has 37 pieces of flair on today. <laughs> and a terrific smile. And need to escape. I don't like my job, and I don't think I'm gonna go anymore. One of these days, I, I, I just, I just kick this piece of 
I'm thinking now it might be more fun to just get fired. And I've always wondered what that would take. So, Peter, listen. Uh, well, it looks like you've been missing quite a bit of work lately. Well, I wouldn't say I've been missing it, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> That's just a straight shooter with upper management written all over him. We're going to be getting rid of these people here. Mr. Samir. Okay, okay. Not going to work here anymore anyway. <laughs> you haven't been showing up and you got to keep your job. Actually, I'm being promoted. Thank you, Bob. This is a... It sucks! They're gonna throw you out on the street so that Bill Lumberg's stock will go up. Ooh. It's completely unfair. Inatech deserves to go down. We're just the guys to do it. Tell me about that virus you're always talking about. The one that could rip off the company for a bunch of money. I'm not going to do anything illegal, Peter. Illegal? Samir, this is America. I mean, office space captured perfectly what this vision of work was all about. It was something we had to do that took up most of our lives and yet at the same time was somehow meaningless, purposeless, repetitive, mundane. Every day was exactly the same. Do this work you hate, leave, then go do what you love on the weekends, wash, repeat, until you die or you retire if you're so lucky to do that. And this shaped my relationship to work. Somehow I came out of this decade believing that work was my purpose and at the same time recognizing that it felt meaningless. And it created this divided life for me after I graduated from college. See, I had work, the grind, this thing I had to do, and then on the outside of it, what I considered my real life, what actually mattered, things like ministry, my relationships, and seminary. And this division of life made me miserable. I remember sitting in my office at the state, which was actually a converted supply closet without windows, fantastic, and I would just plug away at spreadsheets all day long and feel dead inside. Which, I mean, duh, right? How could I possibly be fulfilled or happy if I spent eight hours a day, five days a week, doing something I believed held no value? It's impossible. Of course I was miserable. And in hindsight, what I've come to realize is that that had little to do with the actual job I held. I truly believe I would have carried that attitude into any job. No, see, I think it came from my broken vision of work. And it only changed when I discovered a very different vision embodied in the work found in the Garden of Eden, especially that we see in Genesis chapter 2 that I want to explore today. Now, to recap briefly, Genesis 2 contains the second of two creation accounts. Genesis 1 is the zoomed out universe view where we see God creating everything over these seven symbolic days. And then Genesis 2 repeats that creation account, but zooms in specifically on the creation of humanity. We read in verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. Now, this is a very interesting account. It actually parallels Genesis 1. If you recall Genesis 1, uh, it begins with the universe and disorder and chaos and then God speaks order and life into it. And we see the same kind of pattern here, except for this time, it's the land that's empty and disordered. And that's for two stated reasons. 
First, because there's no water. And second, because there's no one to work it. And just like in Genesis 1, God sees these two problems and works to resolve them. He works to create life. We pick up in verse 6. Streams came out from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. In Hebrew, this word for man is the same as humanity or mankind. It's Adam, or in English, Adam. The more you know. Anyway, and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. So Eden is the region, and he puts a garden in the east of it. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Who makes the trees and food begin to grow, humanity or God? God does. I want you to hold that thought. We're going to come back to that. We go again. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then there's an interlude about the river surrounding Eden, which is actually really fascinating on this Bible geek level, but it's for another day. It's not important for today. And the section closes actually in verse 15 after this interlude. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Remember those two phrases. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So there's a lot to unpack here, but let's start with a misunderstanding. That is the idea of Eden being perfect. You see, Eden is perfect, but not in the way that we often think about the word perfect. As 21st century Americans, perfect means finished to us. Something is perfect when there's no more work to be done on it. So what happens? I think we think about Eden being perfect and we end up confusing Eden's perfection with it being finished. And that turns it into this strange Plutonic ideal, like the spiritual place where humanity lounged around in perfect, lazy bliss. That's what we kind of tend to think about it in our American minds. And personally, that's awfully boring. But more importantly, that's not what Genesis 2 actually says. If that's what perfection means, that Eden was finished, then there being no one to work in Eden wouldn't be a problem that God sets out to solve. You see, in the biblical worldview, Eden's perfection isn't about it being finished. It's completeness and wholeness in Hebrew. It's when, being, it's when something is perfectly set up to mature into what it was intended and has the potential to become, which makes sense when you think about a garden. I think this image is important. I think it was intentional. You make a perfect garden, right? You cut out the space perfectly. You make perfectly measured pieces of wood to hold in each vegetable, these perfectly raised boxes to make it as efficient as possible. And once finished, do you sit and go, what a perfect garden, and then just glory in how beautiful it looks? No, it's perfect, but it's not finished, is it? Because it's perfection, the perfection of its design was for an intended purpose still unrealized, to start gardening in it to start working in it, 
to start raising life out of it. That's the image of perfection here in Genesis 2. Creation and Eden are perfectly designed to become a space where life can continue to flourish more and more. The end of God's perfect work to create isn't the end of his story for creation. It's the beginning. And Genesis 2 points to this. God places humanity in this perfect garden so they can what? What does the text say? Work and take care of it. And these words are awesome. Work or avad means labor. It's another gardening term like subdue for week one. Subduing the land is making the boxes for the garden, giving the raw soil structure that helps it grow. And avad in this text is the effort you put into it. Getting your hands dirty. It's digging, watering, pulling weeds, planting seeds, working in the soil to help life grow abundantly within these parameters that you've set for it. And then the second word, take care of it, or shamar, means to tend or protect. And fascinatingly, it's a priestly phrase in the Old Testament. It's what the priests do in the book of Numbers when they're working in God's tabernacle, and then later when they're working in the temple. Shamar has to do with cleaning, protecting the temple, carrying out the rituals the temple was intended to have within it. In other words, humanity works in creation like a priest works in God's temple. I mean, I think combined, these are, this is a beautiful image of what work was intended to be. God doesn't create just to check off the creating a universe box on his bucket list. And humanity wasn't created to chill forever in perfect bliss, drinking pina coladas. Creation in Eden were perfectly designed to continue to grow as we work alongside our creator in it. As we get our hands dirty, as we guide this perfect space already full of abundant life, so that it can produce even more abundant life as we get our hands in the dirt. That's the vision of work in Genesis 2, where work is deeply relational, something humanity does alongside God and each other in union, where work is a labor of life and love, not survival and bondage. It's not this image of scratching out a bare minimum to survive. That's not what work is in Eden. Work is done in response to God's provision that's already there. It's like I highlighted as we read through the text, God works to create what's needed to sustain life first. And then he settles humanity in it to work it, to take care of it, to creatively expand the garden he's provided already thriving around them. And work in Eden clearly isn't meaningless. It's part of who we are as human beings, as image bearers of God. Humanity is most human. They most reflect their creator when they reflect him in their overseeing, experiencing, and guiding of his abundant gift of creation. I mean, that's a beautiful vision of work, is it not? It's this vision of work where by grace, humanity is invited to look at God's provision and to ask, how can I apply myself, the work of my hands, so that this flourishes even more abundantly? Not because I have to, but because I get to. Effort that's fulfilling, 
sweat that's joyful. It's work that isn't work, at least in how we so often think of it today. But how, how did we get from that to office space and the vision of work we see there? Well, I think it has a lot to do with the last line that we read. God tells humanity that they can eat from any of these flourishing trees, these things that sustain life, except for one, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this tree that symbolizes the right to determine how creation operates and thus the purpose and the direction of humanity's work. God reserves that for himself at this beginning. Evidently, work in Eden required trust on humanity's part. It's a partnership with God where humanity trusts that his provision and his vision of work is good, that it's right, that it's what they need, that it's how they should live. And if you know the story, you know that humanity rejects this trust. They eat from the tree in this moment that the Christian tradition calls the fall and everything breaks, including for today, humanity's relationship to their work. We read in Genesis 3, 17, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat fruit from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you shall return. I mean, this is heartbreaking. But notice what it does to our relationship to work. Notice how that relationship to work that was originally intended in Eden, it just shatters. Humanity chooses this path where work becomes defined by toil, survival, and death. And the Bible plays with this concept moving forward. For example, that word avad, labor, that we see in the garden, this good thing in the garden, begins to also be used for slavery in the books of Exodus and the later Old Testament books. In other words, the creative, joyous work that helps life flourish gets distorted as we move from here because humanity begins working for their will, their vision of how life should be, their power, their control. And what happens? Work becomes toil and it produces not life, but bondage, selfishness, and death. And if you don't believe me, just check out human history. Any examples of humanity using creative work to produce creative tools, not of a flourishing life, but creative tools of destruction, carnage, bondage, and death. Have you seen any of that in human history? This is what happens to our work. And y'all, when I look at our world, I see that. I see that. I think first, I see a vision of work that so many people hold where it's all about me. It's about getting mine. Working for our own selfish purposes is the only point of our work. And we end up toiling, trying to create our own security, our own stability, our own kingdom, and it never works, does it? Work just becomes a rat race, trying to fill a bottomless pit of more. And y'all, that's bondage, that's prison, that's torture. That's not what work was created to be. I think second, I look at our world and I see a vision that's often held about work that compartmentalizes it from our humanity, from our faith, and from our calling. I see 
people believing that being Christian applies to just the religious parts of life, not the secular ones, especially not our businesses, our jobs, our work, which at worst produces outright hypocrisy in these areas. Christians adopting ruthless ambition and greed, believing that God's kingdom doesn't have anything to say and does not impact how we do business if we live within it. And what happens? We waste away and so does our witness. Because the truth is who we are in one thing is who we are in everything. And that compartmentalization does not exist in Christian spirituality. How we work reflects who and what we worship. And if we worship the wrong thing, we work in the wrong way, we waste away. But even at best, that compartmentalization creates a bystander effect. People believing that kingdom work is a choice or something only God does, not an inherent part of our humanity and our calling. See, what happens is we don't see our work as part of our witness because it's compartmentalized somewhere else. Or we start believing that God is the only one who works to build the kingdom and that we're only here to make sure everyone else knows about it, not to take part in it. And both of those just miss the vision of work that we were intended to have, that we are called to have. We were created to be with God in the garden, working alongside him, taking part in his work. That's more than being cheerleaders and bystanders. We can't opt out of that divine work. We don't just glorify God on Sunday by pointing out how good his garden is. We glorify God when we get our hands dirty and when we garden alongside him in his ways, like he does in every single day, in everything. We are most human when we reflect him correctly through how we live and work in the gift that he's given us. And I think third, I often see a vision of work that tells us it's meaningless. It's what author Jeff Duzer calls an instrumental view of work. Seeing work as just a tool to help us do other kingdom things elsewhere that are actually important. That work itself doesn't matter because it's just an instrument for more spiritual things. So what happens? we end up spending 40 plus hours a week doing something that whether we admit it or not, we believe God isn't in. No wonder it eats away at our soul. No wonder we feel dead inside. And it's not true. Work in Eden isn't this instrumental view. Work in Eden holds intrinsic value. The act itself has the potential to reflect our creator when it's done alongside him and in his way. It was intended to be inherently good because it was intended to inherently mirror God, to expand the garden, to grow life like he does. And y'all, this is so important because if God's restoring everything back to Eden in the biblical story, if he's working to renew his image in humanity, to restore that partnership between us, then Eden doesn't just show us what's gone wrong. It shows us the work that Jesus invites us to rediscover and to model and to adopt in this broken world. And that may seem abstract, but it's not. It's so grounded in reality and it has a real impact 
if you'll let it become your vision of work. I mean, just imagine going to work and engaging it with this Eden vision and with these Eden rhythms. Imagine seeing your job as something that you were given to steward, to creatively build pockets of Eden within, right where you are at, no matter what it is you are doing. If instead of thinking, this is pointless, boy, I can't wait to do something that God actually cares about sometime in the future. Instead, you thought everything I do today can potentially expand Eden in this pocket of earth right here and right now. Everything I do today could potentially represent God's image to others better in this pocket of earth right here, right now. Don't you think that if you believe that, you would change what attitudes you fostered towards your job or your coworkers. Don't you think if you believed and held that vision that the beliefs you held about what your work means might begin to shift? Don't you think this might change how we experience our work on Monday and not just our worship on Sunday? I mean, what would happen if you stop thinking of worship and kingdom building as compartmentalized to Sunday growth group or ramp builds and instead believe that your biggest opportunities to glorify God as you were created to show up in how you adopt a posture of service and respond to that annoying customer on the phone who's just frustrated, embarrassed, and wants help. And how you adopt a posture of compassion and respond to your coworker talking about her cats for the 12th time, who's just lonely and looking to connect, and how you deal with conflict at work through grace, refusing to belittle image bearers of God with pointless gossip and slander. Instead, seeing them for what they are, changing your posture and trying to help them become the best at their jobs that they can be, and how you teach students who are often annoying with a posture of love, seeing them not as a problem to be solved, but as bundles of confused emotions, traumas, joys, quirks, and asking not, boy, how can I get through this day? But instead, how can I help this student in front of me become who God created them to be? And how you as a boss or an owner of a business, sacrifice your own gains to make your employees' experience of working for you more humane, more like Eden, healthy, whole, blessed, dignified, a work of real provision, not bare minimum survival. If you modeled Christ and how you took care of those who worked for you, what if in those moments, we didn't try to build our little narcissistic kingdom and instead built his. If we didn't ask, how can I get mine? Instead asked, how can I use these eight hours to best reflect my God and bless his children? That's kingdom work. And in it, this work, my ego disdains, my employment, my career, these tasks I'm given, everything I put my hands to stops being toil and becomes divine opportunities to glorify my God, to be renewed in his image, to experience and expand his garden right where I'm at. Does anyone need that vision of work instead of the grind? I mean, I'll just speak for myself. That's a vision of work that can actually get me out of bed in the morning. 
That's the vision and rhythms we are called to adopt from this text. Starting each day with prayer and meditation and shifting our posture towards Christ, towards what we were intended to be. Entering every environment we work in, remembering it isn't just a cubicle or a converted supply closet. It's a gift given to us to steward by our God, a divine garden space, a little plot of earth in which we can choose to mirror the fall or to mirror this God that loves everyone, serves others, provides for every source of life and creates spaces of perfect safety, health, and growth so the people around him who he loves can become what they were created to be. We must choose to make each space we work in one where life and abundance, not death and toil flourish. And y'all, this isn't just for pastors. It's not just for those spiritual jobs. This vision invites us to look at whatever we've been tasked with, whether it's starting, staring at spreadsheets, bagging groceries, cleaning toilets, driving trucks, whatever, and to see that as a divine opportunity to garden a little piece of Eden here on earth. I think that's beautiful. And I just want to close by saying, asking, where do you need to find that work? Where do you need to share in this vision of Eden? Where do you need to let your rhythms of work be transformed, renewed, and made right here and now so that you can be a pocket of Eden blessing to a world that needs it? That's what it means to work. Amen. Amen.